This is doomed to repeat. Welcome to another episode of Doom to Repeat, a title that's becoming all more appropriate with age. Uh, I am doctoral candidate Nick Hoffman, and here we have... Uh, Alex Safe Cummings, uh, Associate Professor of History at Georgia State University. And today we are sitting in our local professorial graduate bar, I guess you'd say, and we are looking at beer. We want to talk a little bit about where we came from with beer before we get into some academic interviews. And we want to kind of get into how beer fits into your everyday life. So, Alex, before we get too far, I want you to tell me a little bit about your background with beer. Well, my background with beer uh, is such that I think with a lot of uh, college students, um, my first drink in high school, I think, was a uh, Bartles and James uh, wine cooler (laughs) at a party. Um, Then maybe a, a screwdriver after the prom one year. Um, and so it took me a while to get into beer. Uh, when I was first in college, I think uh, I was probably not that different from a lot of uh, sort of newbies who view uh, the point of drinking to get drunk as fast as possible. So we would take shots of vodka or this horrible candy liquor named uh, Aftershock Ooh. and just you know knock back three or four of those to try to get to the place you're going to. The idea of drinking like a PBR to get to that place just seemed to be needlessly painful and inefficient. So it took a long time for me to get into beer and appreciate beer for what it is and develop that taste, which I think sure. is true for a lot of people with things like beer or coffee that might not be as uh, immediately appealing or have some sort of uh, flavor profile that can be bitter or, you know... A little bit difficult to get used to. Sure. I mean, as you can tell by this point, of course, this whole podcast is about things that are banned by the Mormon church. (laughs) But no, I I was thinking about mine because I guess mine's a little bit different. Uh, My father's European. And so, like, I remember growing up that, like, there might be a little Kahlua in a milkshake or something. But, like, my dad drank a very specific Stella Artois. He actually went to school in Louvain and has some wonderful drinking stories about it because it was the beer that was so cheap. It was the local beer, you know. It's the local Budweiser. Exactly right. Uh, now owned by them because all of them are owned by the Belgians. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it's... it's And so when I got to college, you know, yeah, I enjoyed uh, the standard cheap cocktail. I think mine were, you know, white Russians or something, a little bit fancier, but it was because you could control the amount of vodka and it still tasted like coffee and I could do both, you know. See, it's, it's connection. Um, but even as early as, well, I mean, to wit, um, I would go to parties and watch the people do the one-handed keg stand and stuff and be like, my goodness, you'll be terrible at quarters later. I shall <laughs> triumph the day. Um, but no, I, I learned how to drink beer beer. I'm sure like when I was a kid, I tasted my dad's and it was gross because it was probably too bitter for me. And that's the deterrent until I learned better. Um, but right. you know. Um, when I was in college, I would even start out fancier. Um, I went to school in Miami of Ohio, and the local good beer was uh, one of two, Christian Morlian or Great Lakes, both of which still exist. And so uh, if it would be a small party, I would buy like a case of good Great Lakes beer, so everyone would start out with one good one, and then we'd devolve into Beast or uh, Natty Light or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I remember teaching high school, and uh, my AP government uh, seniors asking me, 
to weigh in on the debate about what was the uh, greatest light beer. And they were like, it's clearly Natty Light. And I'm like, I cannot have this conversation with you. Like, it's really not appropriate. Um, but I think it's interesting to, to talk about our backgrounds, too, because uh, I grew up in a house and a family where um, drinking any alcohol at all was uh, strongly, strongly stigmatized and very negative. Um, not even having a glass of wine with dinner would be something even remotely acceptable. Sure. Um, so I think that speaks to the difference between the United States and Europe and other parts of the world and sure. our sort of conflicted relationship with alcohol. We are one of the few countries in the world to have ever actually banned alcohol. That puts us in a club with Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Oman. Like, there's not that Iran. many places, right? Yeah. Um, and even regionally within the United States, there's this variation um, where I think it's fair to say that in New England and the Mid-Atlantic and the Upper Midwest, there's a very different attitude toward sure. drinking than in the Southeast. Um, when you were talking about good beer in college, there was no good beer. Yeah. I mean, like... Um, the, the craft beer revolution hadn't really made it to North Carolina when I was in college. Uh, it's, I think it's fair to say it started on the West Coast and migrated East. Sure. I, could, I could be wrong about that, but you think of the classic you know, early craft beers, Sierra Nevada, in some sense maybe Sam Adams sure. should be regarded as an, one of the early craft beers or indie, indie beers, if you want to call it that. Well, and, and it's interesting, too, because there's also a game to be played. You know, I'm a home brewer, and... Um, you know, homebrewing's fun and dandy. It was made legal federally by Jimmy Carter because, you know, as a good Georgia boy, that's what he did. And his brother immediately profited off of it with Billy Beer. But there's also this other side of it, which is in Georgia, homebrewing competitions became legal very, very recently, uh, about five years ago, um, by the same guy who introduced the uh, Burka ban bill this previous legislative session because people have two sides to the same coin, apparently. And people are very complex, as, very complex, as we as historians know all too well. I think that's really important. I think that's really interesting because while I lived in New York for about seven years, the pop the cap movement was happening in yeah. the southeast. And each state, like North Carolina, Georgia, began to begin to loosen some of the restrictions on what the alcohol content of beers could be, um, what kind of home brewing was allowed, or what kind of um, distribution of different types of beers could be allowed. And um, that was happening in the early 2000s to mid-2000s, and that brought us to where we are today, where Asheville is Beer City, USA, and Atlanta has one new brewery after another. It's a big change. Well, it is. And, you know, like, and again, if I was brewing six years ago, seven years ago, the beer competitions I were entering were literally called the Covert Hop Society because it was illegal at the time. And we would have to FedEx it because even now, if you mail homebrew, it's illegal. Wow. But, you know, we did it. I have an award in my basement. But <laughs> it's worth thinking about because... Um, you know, we're, we're, we're still historians. You know, I, I almost did a dissertation on, on beer because I like drinking, but also because it's interesting. You know, it's, it, you know, it was one of the standard, well, we could back up. You know, beer in the U.S. Me meant a lot. And in fact, the first anti, you know, alcohol movements were temperance movements, not prohibition, because so many people had to drink beer or wine because it was what was able to be drunk you know groundwater was not safe to drink and it was not you know and even for kids as young as six you could drink kinder beers because milk led to milk poisoning and milk poisoning killed children well and there's this politicization of alcohol as well in american history um one of the most seminal moments in the early history of the republic was 
what? The Whiskey Rebellion. Yeah. Because farmers in Western, uh, quote-unquote, Western areas of the 13 uh, initial states uh, found that it was more cost-effective to turn their grain or their crops into alcohol and sell it than... And then, you know, we're fighting over excise taxes. Yeah. But then in subsequent generations, you have beer associated with uh, German immigrants to the United States, different spirits and different types of alcohol associated with different groups. Uh, There's a faculty member here at Georgia State who wrote a book called Jews and Booze, which looked at the conflicted situation of Jewish Americans during Prohibition and the role of wine in uh, religious sacramental rituals. Uh, so it's 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 always been a part of the story from the beginning. Well, and to wit, for my own heritage, I'm a Catholic, and so I grew up where you know church service wasn't a church service unless six year olds were drinking wine, you know. <laughs> and you know, and it's it's kind of silly and it's being specious, but if you consider it at the most basic level of the religious thing that you're supposed to do on a Sunday, it's really hard to excise it. And, you know, I mean, Prohibition really got its teeth because of the nativist movement when before World War I, German immigrants called themselves, you know, the German Alliance or whatever, and then we had World War I, you know, and people like Anheuser-Busch aren't exactly American names, right? right? And it's really easy to associate that kind of thing. Now, of course, in the South, much not unlike the craft beer movement later, our struggles with beer come down to a matter of fighting the federal state, you know. And so, you know, when the revenuers came to look for your liquor, you know, I mean, J, you can still buy good moonshine, right? My mom went to Ohio University, not Ohio State, not, excuse me, the Ohio State, Ohio University. And they would drive across the bridge into West Virginia and just buy moonshine because that's what you could just do. And, um, you know, distilling liquor has become... Because, again, when you can't stop beer, because beer just happens, man. Uh, You can't arrest people who are buying yeast. Those could just be bakers. It's not hard to make wine or beer. Right. Uh, In fact, in nature, elephants get drunk by hiding fruit. I know that. Um, Regardless. So what we're talking about here is also a culture of beer. You know, uh, we're recording from a tavern, a bar called Augustine's in Georgia. And, you know, we are here at Ground Zero of the Southern Beer Movement. That's right. For those of you who have come to the area, the big importer for the longest time was the Brick Store Pub, where where I was first introduced to my real Belgian beers outside of Belgium, to now where, you know, if you go to a party at Georgia Tech or University of Georgia, you have Terrapin, you have Sweetwater, you have Red Brick, and we have a craft beer revolution happening on the ground level, which is, I think, what's important. Samuel Adams, always a good decision. Would you like something to drink? I'll have water, please. Uh, water for me, too, but with lemon, please. I'll have a Sam Adams. It's 9.30 in the morning. And don't you have an outstanding DUI? Yeah, but I gotta get the taste of weed and hooker spit out of my mouth. I'll have a Sam Adams, too. Samuel Adams, always a good decision. Next, I want to take you to an interview that I did with Jonathan Baker. He's one of the co-founders of Monday Night Brewing, and he wants to make it clear right off the bat that starting a brewery in the South is not just a problem, it's nigh on impossible, because beer is... Regulated by 14 different entities. Oh, really? uh, At the federal level, state level, Mm -hmm. county level, city level. 
uh, everyone wants to get involved in alcohol regulation because of the taxes, basically. Right. Which means that you've got 14 different governing bodies with 14 different sets of rules, and uh, it's it's uh, complicated. <laughs> so you went from, you know, b- meeting guys in the morning to brewing in the afternoons to saying, this is good. I mean, people were showing up to drink this beer, right? Yeah, and I mean, it, it was free, but... <laughs> no, well, right, but it was, like, it was like a block party, you know, like, yeah. you know, when I'm home brewing in full, you have... Well, you guys going to come over? Because I have too much to drink on my own. You know, it's, I, I get that. And then all of a sudden, you're, you're here trying to find distributors. And I, I, it's interesting because I would have thought, as a business, the hardest part is to find the storefront and the place to brew because you need a lot of space to brew. But you actually had to find the distributor first. Yes. That, that's – I mean, it's, it, it shows you how weird this – I guess the three-tier system is. But um, yeah, Honestly, we found a distributor before we'd ever had a product. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we uh, so they're and they're, so they're taking a leap of faith in a way too because they don't know exactly how we're going to be able to run our business. They don't know exactly what the beer is going to be tasting like. Sure, but you can't um, you can't brew without having those relationships in place. Did they help you pick your first beer release, or did you guys have that in mind? Uh, that's on that's on us. Yeah. Um, so we launched with our IPA. Uh, and our Scotch Ale. So what happened next? You you found your distributor. You had beers in mind, and I'm sure by that point you had a dozen recipes you had been working on, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you picked your two. Then what? You you open up, or you find this place, which is near tech. It's convenient. You'll have a, an audience that can stumble over and stumble back. Like it's it's a <laughs> great. No, I mean that that matters. You know, I mean it's why red hair. Or sorry, um, you know, Red Brick and Sweetwater started near tech, right? You have a built-in audience, and Terrapin is near Athens, right? So they have a UGA yeah. audience. Well, we actually started um, by contract brewing. Oh, really? With whom? Uh, Thomas Creek. Oh, sure. In uh, uh, South Carolina? In South Carolina, in cool. Greenville. Yeah, the same folks uh, Wild Heaven used for a while. And so we ne- we didn't have a physical space to start out, and we were draft only for a year and a half. Um, so I was I was running the business from my couch. And, uh, wow. <laughs> no, I mean, it's just, this and, is but, great. But that gave us the, uh, data we needed to know how big a space we wanted, mm-hmm. you know, um, how much money we thought we'd need to invest in this. Cause frankly, the one thing we didn't really know much about starting this business was brewing. <laughs> we, we knew marketing, we knew finance, we knew operations. We did not know how to make beer. Mm-hmm. So, um, and we can make great beer at the homebrewing level, but as you can imagine, it's sure. it's uh, it's a different beast scaling it up. Yeah. Um, well, and it's also consistency. Sure. Which is the the tricky part of even homebrewing, right? It's that you want to brew the same beer six times, and each time it's a little different because you're brewing, you know, in the afternoon, having a beer and grilling out. Yeah, and that's one of the unique things about the homebrewing culture is there's. And that's why it's so fun, I think, because, you know, you're not necessarily as concerned about consistency. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we were homebrewing with the thought of opening up a brewery, we had to focus on consistency. And homebrewing just isn't really set up for that. So we're like, oh, now we have to go buy distilled water and, like, yeah. you know, <laughs> monitor our temperatures 24-7. And sure. Like, all these... <laughs> And it doesn't touch the air in the same way when you have, you know, the buckets and you're pouring yeah, from one right, to the other. And right. this is now all siphoned and, you know, 
it's it's incredible. Um, uh, we, you know, when they have a Monday Night Falcons game, we always come over here too. Oh, um, nice! That's it's what you do. I'd rather have, you know, I'd rather pay you guys for beer than you know twelve dollars for a can of Bud Light at the stadium. Yeah, sure. Yeah, but um, so how does the audience come to you? How how do you become a the fixture in Atlanta that you are? We uh, actually started a blog back in 2006 chronicling our, our journey towards starting a brewery. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think because of the blog and then social media after that, we were able to develop a little bit of a following organically. Um, having people come through the garage helped a lot. You know, we ended up with just complete strangers uh, yeah. brewing with us. And some nights we'd have 50 people in our garage. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it, it happened relatively organically. Um, you know, we obviously got to know the people, the culture. Um, you know, for our blog, we would interview Craig at Hop City, who, owned, you know, he owns um, one of the, well, probably the, the beer store, the beer store yeah. in Atlanta. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it kind of... Our goal is not necessarily to push ourselves out there, but to be a brewery that people feel like they've discovered yeah. in some way. And uh, that's happened slowly, but I think you know now we're one of the, the largest in Atlanta, at least. Well, and I think, I think your point is interesting because there's a difference between being like a destination brewery and a neighborhood brewery, if, if that makes sense. Because I think you guys have been the place on the corner you know like crappy french or italian restaurant there's the table wine right i think you guys are kind of like a table beer you know you know what you're gonna get it's good it's refreshing it's nothing it's not like ooh, let's be fancy it's it's the beer that people want to drink at the end of the day it's enjoyable and i think that matters it's like having a neighborhood bar it's comfortable it's familiar Mm -hmm. i think that's an interesting thing to do and it makes you an endearing local brewery. It's the place that you want to take someone from out of town. Right. You know, it's the place on a Saturday afternoon, you bring the dog and have a hot dog. I think that's interesting um, because it makes a beer culture, right? You know, and the idea of having a Southern beer culture is something relatively new that you guys are a part of. You're this corner of the city. Whether we like it or not. Right. And I mean, and that, that's, that's such an interesting... I don't want to say problem, but it's an interesting thing to think about. You know, it's because like Sweetwater, I mean, this this dates when I'm interviewing you, but they just had this huge heist, you know, yes. which was a weird story. But like I was just visiting my family in Ohio. Uh, my, my wife's from Cleveland and it was, you know, a certain beer that was stolen, that kind of thing. So I told my father-in-law who likes the beer and then he can get it in Cleveland. And so he found the 12 pack and I was just like, so now it's a nationwide thing. But when they came to town, we didn't go to Sweetwater. We came here because they can get Sweetwater. You're a neighborhood. Yeah, and we've actually been very intentional about not expanding geographically. Um, mm-hmm. And actually, the main reason is, frankly, because we want to enjoy what we do. <laughs> it's fairly selfish. Um, you know, we, we all took pay cuts to enter this industry. And sure. I don't want it to feel like another corporate job except where I'm making less money so I'd rather just make less money and have fun yeah and, and then you develop an audience you have people who whose feedback you want right you know you don't you don't have some 
jerk on beer advocate who's reviewing you that someone you'll never see, right? This is someone who comes up to you on a Saturday and is like, man, you did a great job this time. And they'll come back. Or yeah. I didn't care for that. Yeah. And they'll still come back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> guys feel like um, Georgia is changing? I mean, you you said you've been doing this for almost 10 years now, right? Um, how do you guys feel like it's changing? How do you want it to change? Where, where do you guys feel like we are in this process? You know, Georgia is definitely getting uh, easier mm-hmm. when it comes to starting a brewery, running a successful brewery. The laws are loosening um but we're still one of the bottom probably three states in the u.s when it comes to um alcohol friendly laws Mm -hmm. uh so there's you know there's a long way to go if you look at a state like oregon craft beer is 40 percent of all beer consumed and here we're um at 10 percent um so you know there's there's a lot of potential still mm-hmm. uh, I think people are there's still a lot of people discovering what craft beer is and I guess what beer is right like there's there's been this notion for so long in America primarily due to um, prohibition uh, that beer is this light fizzy super drinkable clean mm-hmm. beverage and that is beer but that's not all that beer is. Yeah. Um, and there's so much more to it. I mean, beer, I, if I think about beer versus wine, I think beer has much more breadth than wine does in terms of flavor profiles. Sure. Um, so it's, it takes a while to, to discover as well, right? You start with one style and you stick with that for a while and then maybe you move on to another and you're like, oh my gosh, this is so different. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I, it's it's interesting because in the same time period we've had this kind of evolution of all sorts of like niche things. You know, like it went from you know Coke versus Pepsi versus RC or whatever to you know novelty sodas and like Jones soda and like all these little mm-hmm. everything you know and and whiskeys and all across the spectrum. And beer, on one hand, is to your point so much more fundamental. You'd think, you'd think. It would be something that was everywhere, but, you know, Budweiser is, I mean, it's not even that it's bland. It's that it's a marketed product like Coca-Cola. You know, like, it has no character because that's how they brew it. They, they brew it to be identical if you're in Belgium or if you're in or Oregon or Washington State. 
by the billion of gallon. It's characterless. You so, know? yeah, so if you look at other states, even nearby, so yeah. let's take North Carolina, for example, that's had a pretty open beer culture for a while. The primary difference is um, the ability of breweries to sell beer directly mm-hmm. there. Um, because what that does is gives them much higher margins, which means that they don't have to be as big. Yeah. Um, here, when our margins get cut immediately, as soon as the product leaves the door, that means that a brewery, in order to survive, has to reach a certain scale here quickly in order to to make it, which is kind of a natural barrier to entry, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so you, in some ways, have to be a relatively decent size just to survive in Georgia right now. Sure. So what do you think that says about the fact that there are now like 45 breweries that have opened in the last six years? Is that a concern? Does uh, that Frankly, yes. I don't think all of them will survive. Hmm. Um, now, the laws are changing, yeah. and I think we will get there. Um, so it's kind of a <laughs> can who has pockets deep enough to last. Sure. <laughs> well, I mean, like, I mean, to your point, uh, when you were opening, it was the three that you mentioned – Plus, at that point, maybe, what, Jailhouse and maybe Wild Heaven? Like When we opened, Jailhouse was around. Wild Heaven was around, although they were still a contract brewery. Right. So you guys have pretty much established, I don't think any of you are going anywhere, but, you know, someone like Blue Tarp in Decatur, which is a small little place in an expensive part of town, you know, and not to mention the another 30 that have opened in that same area. It's, it's, it's interesting. Do, do you guys, I mean, I'm sure you don't see Sweetwater as a threat. Um, cause at least from how, other brewers I've talked how to, could we? right. I mean, <laughs> and you guys are kind of all in this together against someone like Budweiser and Cartersville in some ways. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, we're, we're in this together against kind of big corporate, um, beer mm-hmm. and, by corporate, I mean kind of not independent, mm. uh, where you're not free to make your own decisions about what you're brewing and who you're selling it to. And sure. So uh, it's not necessarily Budweiser. It's uh, it's this whole idea of like we are Americans and we <laughs> and we sure. uh, build things ourselves and we you know can make decisions ourselves. It's I mean frankly it's pretty fundamental to American culture and mm-hmm. kind of who we are as a people. Um, I think we're craft brewing is kind of a microcosm of, of yeah. American culture in that sense. Well, and, and to me, that's why it's so interesting that it's such a weird debate going on now. Because I agree with you. I think beer is one of these things, and we have such an interesting immigrant culture. I, like my eth- ethnic background is Belgian, you know. Like, and it's a beer culture. You're white, right? <laughs> you know, my, my my dad is from Belgium, so whenever I go back, I get bottles from things that of styles that you don't even have. You know, like it's it's a crazy world out there. Mm-hmm. You know, my my wife's family's Czech, and like when you come here, that means that you know in you know industrial Midwest, you have a lot of you know Czech style and German style, and um, down here we have just it's it's, it's an amalgam. We, we we have that available to us, and it's so interesting that. Um, the way we're dealing with that is to restrict it. I, I think your point is interesting because down here we try to, you know, best business sense, we're, we're very getting regu- try to get rid of regulations and laissez-faire, but there's this weird moral thing about alcohol in the South still. And I'm trying to figure out why beer is so regulated here 
because it seems in some ways counterintuitive. Like you said, we're trying to develop this weird, I mean, weird, this culture, this beer culture of something that everyone drinks, but it seems like we're being stopped at everywhere. You guys are being like the, the brewers are being limited in assemblies. The same bill has come up for the last four years and seems to be shot down each time to one degree or another. It's, it's, it's an interesting predicament you guys are in. Do you guys feel like as um, the beers are becoming more nationwide, like that other people are competing with you from other states? Is that part of the problem as well? Other breweries? Yeah. Sure. Um, you know, we have the most breweries now than we've ever had. There are over 4,500 breweries in the U.S. Mm-hmm. now, which is incredible to think about. And uh, it's... It's not like it's not like the craft beer market is growing at the same rate that the number of craft breweries are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it takes time to educate people. It takes time to change laws. It takes time sure. to kind of eat into the market share of um, you know either mainstream beer, wine, liquor, whatever it is. And uh, so, yeah, there's definitely competition, particularly on premise where there's a a limited number of taps. Right. So, you know, a restaurant only has eight taps. Yeah. And if you've got four times as many breweries competing for those same eight taps, Mm -hmm. you're going to run into some competition. (laughs) Sure. And it's and I I was thinking about that difficult duality, because on one hand, you want to be like. I think it was an article in Creative Loafing about a year ago that said there's actually now more, it's probably 420, but, you know, Sweetwater 420 on draft than Bud Light or something like that, which is like, you know, yeah, we're beating them, but at the same time, it'd be great if it were Fu Man Brew or something. You know, like, it'd be great if it were one of your guys, because I imagine there's also that problem where if you're in a dive bar or something, they have five, six taps, and one is going to be Bud Light, one's going to be Coors. How many are open for craft brewing? And if Sweetwater's taking one of them, that probably is competition for a small slice of the market, right? We'd, you know, we'd love to have any tap we can get. We're not going to play dirty and try to get it. And <laughs> four, we started in a Bible study. But, you know, 420 is definitely a beer that's made a name for itself. And people now go into a bar and just ask for 420 without even knowing if it's on the menu, right? And there's something to be said for that. Um, yeah. The, the folks like me and you who are probably a smaller subset of the craft beer drinkers even, um, yeah, maybe we want more choice. Maybe we are clamoring for different things. But the fact that someone is now going into a bar and asking for a 420, yeah. that person was probably a, a Bud Light drinker before that. Yeah. And that's incredible that, that uh, Sweetwater's kind of done their part in helping to convert um, folks to... Um, craft beer. Yeah, and it makes me think of like, uh, you know, places like Taco Mac where they encourage you to try a different beer each time, literally with their clubs, you mm-hmm. know, and like that we have this this almost, you know, other side of it where bartenders are like shoving you, you know, like try something new, try something new, which is fantastic. You know, it, it makes for uh, the development of this kind of craft beer scene, which is... Unless yeah. you've got a lot of bad beer being made. Which I'm not saying is the case, yeah. But it, sometimes it happens. <laughs> well, and it, it probably um, happens. It's not even that it's always bad beer. Which sometimes, yes, there's there's bad beer and beer that is poorly taken care of with dirty lines that makes it taste like literally nothing. But there's also a problem where if you want a pale ale at the beginning of spring and there's 400 pale ales on draft, 
you know, and it's kind of hard, like why people choose one versus another. And that's when the neighborhood part of it comes in. That's when people look for a specific, well, these guys are from Atlanta. We should drink them. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, if you had to pick uh, when a new brewery opens, right, they have the pale ale or IPA, the wheat and probably a porter or stout. Bud Light presents Real Men of Genius. Real Men of Genius. Today we salute you, Mr. Giant Taco Salad Inventor. Mr. Giant Taco Salad Inventor. Ground beef, refried beans, guacamole, cheese, sour cream, and if there's any room left, a few shreds of lettuce. I don't see no lettuce. A culinary creation that baffles the human mind. A 12,000 calorie salad. Some may ask, is your taco salad healthy? Of course it is. It's a salad, isn't it? You can eat that deep fried country So crack open a nice cold Bud Light conquistador of the calorie. You put the feast in fiesta. Mr. Giant Taco Salad in Yeah, and I think this is interesting because we can go back and find the origins of beer in ancient civilizations. We know the central role that wine has played in many religious traditions. This is something so elemental and in some ways universal to the human experience, at least outside of the Americas. Um, In Eurasia and Africa, alcohol was a very big part of traditional cultures. So to think about that in this broad sweep of history, and then the moment we're in where everything is so specialized, everything is so unique, everything is so driven by a kind of sense of u- uniqueness. Uh, I remember sitting here at Augustine's uh, a c- couple months ago, and there was an older woman who uh, was sitting at the bar. And I asked about a beer to the bartender, you know, is this local? And she said, well, you know, I'm just curious. Why, why does that matter? Yeah. Why do you care about that? And I said, you know, to be honest, I, I can't say. But... It is something that our generation of drinkers um, is interested in. You know, the unique, the local, the specific variety. Just wanting to try something different. When I go to a new city, uh, whether it's Denver or Charlotte or Chicago, I want to try what's local or unique from there. So we see this vast, you know, diversification of 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 alcohol and drinking and beer. Um, I think this is really interesting from my own point of view as a scholar because I'm really interested in what scholars call a shift from Fordism, like Henry Ford, yeah. like mass production, Brave standardization. The world is the sign of the tea, right? <laughs> That's right. Before Ford and after Ford, um, which typifies American culture in the mid 20th century, right? Yep. There's this sense that everybody drinks Budweiser, everybody drinks Milwaukee's Best, The Beast. It's all standardized, it's all mass-produced, it's cheap. And then we shift to something that scholars call post-Fordism, which everything is customized, everything is unique, everything is tailored to specific tastes. Um, And we see this since the 1970s. Craft beer seems to me to be the quintessential example of what we would call post-Fordism. Yeah. Well, and I think there's also two parts to the question you asked, right, which is that I mean, I know goddamn liberal academics are going to talk about capitalism, but, you know, there's also this idea, like, and this is part of the, the hipster crap that we talked, I mentioned earlier, but 
so when I was interviewing back in the day breweries for, for the pieces that I were writing, Jailhouse brought up this idea that there, were, there are certain beers that all breweries start with because they're the easiest transition for people who've only had Budweiser and then maybe a Blue Moon to be fancy. And it's the standard either a pale ale or an IPA. You have a, um, a, either a, a, like a wheat beer or you have a stout or a porter. You know, those are the, th- the three general categories, and every brewery wants to have one so that they can be like, why, this pale ale is not that crazy different from a lager. Why, now I'm being fancy. Fine. And, you know, and I've talked to, to bartenders and I've talked to brewers that are like, we're right on the cusp of almost having a neighborhood beer where your neighborhood brewery is almost as easy as getting to as the neighborhood pub in, in the metro area, and, and that's true. On the other hand, we have the, the problem of capitalism where... There's a price for everything, and everything has its price. And so when I first started learning how to beer, I was reading uh, Michael Jackson's Guide to Beer. You know, not, not, not the musician, the, the kid toucher, the other one, the, the one who reviewed beer for everyone, who was talking about how the best beer on the planet was St. Bernardus Abbey 12, which is a magnificent, incredible beer, which at the time you would have to go to a brick store and they might be out because it was hard to get their hands on. But then the global demand surged. So now anyone who wants to try St. Bernardus can get a really good fresh one. And we've moved on to other things. Hetty Topper by The Alchemist, you can't, it, it's a dream. It, you might have just told me it was made up, and I'd believe you because I'll never taste it in my lifetime. Um, same with West Lateran or Westie 12, which is apparently the best beer in the world. It's a Belgian Trappist beer. You can't get it. And when, they tr- when the monastery half burned down, they sold it in the States for the first time as a fundraiser. A six-pack was like a hundred bucks. Empty bottles were going on Amazon and eBay for two hundred dollars a bottle, empty, for something that doesn't even have a recognizable label. Because people are so entangled with this idea of beer being that fancy thing that they have to pay whatever they want for it. Well, I think that's part of the cultural politics that's really fascinating. I mean, I think it's fair to say that there's a connoisseurization of beer that seems pretty similar to what has been the case with wine in the past, right? Uh, People have a nose for beer. People talk about beer in the same kind of pretentious terms that people traditionally talked about wine. And that's happened. Yeah. Well, and I I think coupled with that, too, is it's not just... I mean, you're right. It's it's connoisseurization. It's this idea that, well, if I'm going to eat something earthy, I need to have a a stout, just like you'd have a red wine. A beer pairing. A beer pairing. Exactly right. But I think it's also frustrating because that's not what beer ever was, you know. I mean, to be fair, though, it's not really what wine ever was either, you know. For the vast majority of people, for the vast majority of human history, wine was not a snooty, um, you know, specialization of, of specialized knowledge. It was just what people drank with dinner. Sure. And if you go to even like places, I have family in Bruges in Belgium. Um, I pronounce it the French way because I don't speak any Dutch and I apologize for that, but sorry, not sorry. But you know, you, you can drive down the street and because of the natural yeast in the air and the fact that if you've seen a Heineken commercial, there's three natural ingredients in beer. There's not a lot of variation, you know, and you can literally have, you know, a beer to guard or a, you know, a Trappist because that's what grows in the area and that's what it is. And there's a thousand variations, but they're all very regional. And now the fact that you can make a Belgian here is kind of like having sourdough outside of San Francisco. It's just not the same. Is this, is this sort of like the idea of terroir, like in wine? 
It is, but it's also um, the fact that the yeast makes the flavor, and all beer had a function, right? You know, an IPA is called an IPA because it was an Indian pale ale, and the Brits loved to have their, their, their it was called ale because lager was something the Continentals did. Um, and so they added so much hops and so much alcohol that it would transfer all the way to India, right? Right. And so, like, it had a very functional use, and not just to get you schnockered. That was the natural ingredient. So, yeah, there's a terroir sense of it. But in beer, it matters much more of the natural beasties in the air. I've made wild beers where I literally just left the lid off the fermenter and still started to bubble and then just made whatever it was, made a beer to guard in the Cobb County sense, I guess. Um, and so when we drink what we drink, there's the two aspects of it. There's the unfortunate beer club aspect where you can be like, well, I've had a million beers and my liver is still almost functioning. <laughs> but there's also this idea of saying, I want a Georgia beer because, damn it, we're in Georgia. And this is something, at least, that's fresh that's made down the road. Right. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because there's a certain sense of what you're talking about, this functionalism, this pragmatic aspect of, like, this is the beer that's from here because these are the kind of ingredients that are available. This is the environment it's made in. That's not... It's just... It's very organic in that sense. And then there's distinctiveness for distinctiveness's sake. They're like, I just want something different. I want something weird. I'm a consumer with finicky tastes, and I just want to try everything, which is yeah. the what you might call the hipsterization of beer to yeah. some extent. And we should kind of get into that because it's, on one hand, the logical extension of capitalism, that we can ultimately find something that fashion di dictates should have a value, so the value goes through the roof, right? You know, and I driving through Northern California, Oregon, and Washington at one point ended up at, in Tillamook and went to Degard Brewery, which is one of these places that is a who's who if you like sour beer and it's hard to get to. And they don't sell their beer outside of the brewery. But we were in the area because I wanted to go on a cheese tour because sometimes you just need to go on a cheese tour. But, um, you know, and those are the kind of things you chase down. But we're getting to the point where something like Brooklyn Black Ops you can't find in the store and if you buy it at a restaurant it's like $100 a bottle Hetty Topper is not available outside of Burlington, Vermont ever um, and you know some beers catch up to demand like you know you can find plenty of the uh, elder if you try but you know the monks the Trappist monks aren't going to try to raise supply to meet demand that's not their game you know right so it's just that's the other problem you know for a when alcohol is supposed to be the drink of the people to unwind you know it's the, the 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 sports bar where the working class watches the falcons play they're not going to be chasing down a 25 dollar eight ounce pour this right. isn't whiskey right. you know well and 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 to your point you know i have a friend who we'll talk to later whether he ends up on the episode or not we'll see uh named jason jones not the one you'd hope uh, but he, he runs um, one of these services that does brewery tours. You know, you, he'll take you to a bunch of them in the area. And, you know, and he was at Taco Mac with me the other day, and he was like, look, there's 150 beers on the menu, but they're all the same five styles, virtually identical, because beers that are unique are so hard to come by now that people either A, buy by style, because well, I'm going to eat this, I feel like a pale ale or whatever, or people are beguiled by expensive names and prices, just like the problem they were having with wine, you know, like we're wine like a wine expert can't tell you one from another even. Right. So, you know, for us, we thought this was a delicious topic because we got to drink and talk about it and it's a tax deduction. But also <laughs> because we're in an era and an area of the country where we're spoiled for choice all of a sudden, where, you know, if I were a betting man, 
I would say that the market is going to burst. There's too many breweries opening every week here. And yet, in the back of my head, I almost hope that it means that each neighborhood has two or three, and we just can go to a local brewery like we would a local pub. Get off. We have five more continents to visit. Hey, Lisa, I dare you to drink the water. I'm not sure that is water. Chicken. So I think that's the other side we're trying to rationalize. What is the thing from Star Trek, I think, uh, that Jaden Roddenberry said, infinite... Infinite variety and infinite combinations. Yeah. Is that the yeah, yeah, yeah. infinite diversity or infinite variety and infinite combinations? I mean, that's where we're going with this sort of new hipster mm. post-Fordist post capitalism. Um, and it reminds me of the fact that when I first went to college, like Heineken was a special beer. Like, you know, com- yeah. relatively speaking, right? Compared to, you know, Natty Light or Bud. Sure. And it reminds me of that great episode of Mad Men where... Betty is hosting, um, you know, Don's work colleagues, and she wants to serve Heineken as this very fancy foreign drink, and all the ad men, like, laugh at her and make fun of her and ridicule her because they knew that suburban housewives just like her would fall for this idea, right? It was something new. It was something different. It was distinctive. Yeah. We've come a long way from the idea of Heineken being the new and distinctive beer, so where where, where does that leave us? Well, I mean, mean, to wit... When I was doing a Bond podcast as a movie podcast guy, when, when Daniel Craig started drinking Heineken it was over his martini, there was a loss of class there, you know? I mean, and, and they, I mean, it's funny because they even make that joke in the commercials now where Benicio Del Toro is talking about how great Heineken is and the people confuse him with Antonio Banderas as though they're even missing the point as to whether or not it's a fancy beer or not, right? Wow, that is interesting. <laughs> right, you know? I mean, I went to a baby shower recently where they were serving alcohol, of course, um, and they were serving Peroni because I guess it's fancier than Coors Light, but because it's Italian, it doesn't taste like anything. Was this your baby shower? No. No, Of course not. (laughs) Mine, we had whiskey and and people with taste, but um, it's just one of those things. Peroni is fine, but Peroni and Stella and Budweiser and Coors are all owned by the same two companies. Even Terrapin distributed by uh, Coors Miller now. Well, that's another part of it I find really interesting, is that we have this, uh, it's, it's sort of like the idea um, that Chris Anderson called the long tail, um, that you might have uh, on an online platform, for instance, like iTunes or Amazon, you might have just a vast, vast diversity of choices that no traditional record store or bookstore could ever accommodate. You can get that obscure, weird, like, um, you know, um, that that dirty romance novel uh, seduced by Clippy. Um, You know, there are things like that, but there's also a massive concentration and consolidation of ownership. And that's what's happened with beer at the same time that you have this just proliferation of so many options. You also have a massive international consolidation of 
you know, 80, 90% of the world beer market in the hands of two or three companies, yeah. which is uh, troubling, I think, on some level. But we also don't notice it because we're drinking our uh, chai tea milk stouts and there's all these options. So yeah. you have a weird combination of diversity plus uh, uniformity or consolidation. To alcohol, the cause of and solution to all of life's problems. Oh, what is the malted liquor? What gets you drunker quicker? What comes? We would like to thank Monday Night Brewery and Augustine's for allowing us to record. The clips you heard were from Anheuser Busch and Sam Adams, Family Guy, and The Simpsons, which are owned by Fox. A theme was written by Tender Pony. Alex Cummings is an associate professor of history at Georgia State University. His book, Democracy of Sound, Music Piracy and the Remaking of the American Copyright in the 20th Century, is available wherever books are sold. Follow his blogs, The Tropic of Metal. Nick Hoffman is a lecturer at Kennesaw State University and a PhD candidate at Georgia State University. He produced this episode for Dude Letter Podcast. Drink with your family, drink it with your friends, drink till you're fat. Hey, my butthole is surfing. Uh, yeah. <laughs>